welcome to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. I'm Jamie Mize. Today is the fifth episode of our second season, History's Lessons. This season, we are exploring topics that our students said they wanted to know more about after taking our classes. Our fifth episode explores the Silk Roads. To learn about the Silk Roads, where they were and who and what traveled on them, I spoke with Dr. Charles Beam. Dr. Beam is a professor of British history at UNCP. Dr. Beam's publications include The Lioness Roared, The Problems of Female Rule in English History, The Royal Minorities of Medieval and Early Modern England, The Foreign Relations of Elizabeth I, The Name of a Queen, William Fleetwood's Itinerarium at Windsor, the Man Behind the Queen, Male Consorts in History, and Queenship in Early Modern Europe. He is also, with Carol Levin, the editor of a book series called Queenship and Power for publishers Paul Grave Macmillan. All right, Dr. Beam, how are you doing today? Good morning. I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the Silk Roads. So to get us started, I just wanted to ask you how you came across the Silk Roads as a topic that you wanted to incorporate in your classes. Okay, well, that's, a, that's a great question. Thank you, Dr. Mines. You're welcome. Um, believe it or not, oh, I would say probably about five years ago, I'm, I've taught my World Civ course for 20 years now, and about five years ago. And I wasn't paying attention to how much the textbook cost at the bookstore. And I had students come to me and say, Dr. Beam, how come your textbook costs $136? And I just thought, oh my God. And I was just aghast. And so I stopped using that textbook. And I decided, well, why should I find another textbook? I've been teaching this course and I've They've been developing some ideas about, you know, what world civilizations means to me and and what I want it to mean to my students. And so I thought I would write my own text. And I began this project and I realized after I wrote three chapters that it was a little too much that I wanted to chop off. But I did write three chapters as a very basis for this. And in restructuring, of course, you know, practically, you know, turning it inside out, I wanted to figure out what was the way in which through time that civilizations came closer together. And I began to develop the idea that, that it is a process called globalization. And now we're familiar with that term today. It's used commonly to describe, you know, uh, the way that communications work and transportation works or, or the ways in which, uh, money transfers around the world. And, but it's also, also associated with the spread of diseases as well as, uh, economic exploitation of underdeveloped nations and the destruction of rainforests. All those are sort of connected with globalization. And they are the results, of course, of, of in many ways, the world becoming so closely connected together. And I thought that, can I use this term to describe this entire process as it, as it unfolds over history? If we go back to our very earliest civilizations uh, that arose in, in Egypt and Mesopotamia, 
And in India and China, they were all isolated. They began to develop on their own uh, through those you know, advantages that they had in their localities. But it is through time and space that all these civilizations that developed initially separately from one another would eventually become part of a thriving trade network. And this was the way in which the old world of Europe and Asia and Africa came together to share their knowledge, their ideas, and through time, how civilizations became more sophisticated. And the ingredient that I've identified and that I, that I teach to my students is that it is the idea that, that it is cosmopolitanism, the idea that, that people become willing to interact with and share and learn from people who are different from one another. Now, historically, at the same time that all this is happening, uh, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. And I saw that the United States was becoming a country under his leadership that was moving away from this idea of global cooperation and the idea of being part of a global community. And for me personally, I thought that this was not a good approach for the United States of America. I, I as an as a, as a old man, I feel very strongly and very powerfully the problems that affect the entire world, global hunger and the spread of pandemic diseases. But also, uh, I, I love to see the pursuit of social justice, the pursuit of freedom. These things are very, very important to me. And being an American, I've always considered these to be American ideals. So all of these various factors sort of came together as I began a very intensive study of the ways in which civilizations came closer together. Now, geography has a, a lot to do with this. Europe and Asia are laid out in an east-west axis. And this, of course, is an idea from Jared Diamond's book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. You know, and relatively speaking, this made the ease of, of travel much easier in the old world. And when we look at the, the big conquerors of, of the ancient and the classical and the medieval worlds, like, like Cyrus the Great of Persia, Alexander the Great, later on Genghis Khan, you know, nothing stands in their way because they, you know, they have the, the, the desire to, to do these things. But at the same time, they are able to make those kinds of journeys. So slowly and surely, these connections start to happen. The real pivotal point comes around 163 BCE, you know, before our common era, in the, in the post-Hellenistic world after Alexander the Great, who had brought his troops all the way to Afghanistan. Now, descendants of Alexander settled in these areas, and in, in an area that at that time was called Bactria. And there was a connection of trade that connected Bactria all the way to the Mediterranean, uh, to the rising Roman Empire. At the same time, all the way in the east, Han emperors are moving westward. Why? They hear the best horses are in Central Asia. 
So at a pivotal moment, representatives of the Han emperors wearing silk meet Bactrian Greeks in the center of Asia, and they have the horses that they want. And this is that moment, that moment where Western civilization realizes there's silk, there's porcelain, there are spices. And this was that moment. I, the analogy I like to use for my students is that moment in 1869 in Promontory, Utah, where the, the, the first intercontinental railroad was connected where you could go from San Francisco all the way to New York City for the very first time, right? This is that moment also where that final, where the, the, where, where the Western end and the Eastern end come together. Now, through time, through time, the bonds get stronger and stronger and stronger. There are offerings. Now it goes down to India. Later on, it goes down the western side of, of Arabia, sort of like, you know, I-5 um, that takes you down to the Horn of Africa, where East Africa becomes part of a much larger trading network. How do we know that? Because we see in the, in, in the remains of ancient southern African kingdoms that were in silk. And it only came from one place at that time. At the same time, Han emperors have uh, have uh, a, you know uh, um, uh, African ivory, right? So, which was very very prized all over the world, also. But I've mentioned this idea about sophistication, and we see that through constant contact between civilizations, as they share their knowledge or as they share what I like to call their human capital. We see greater sophistication in all the different aspects of civilization, like architecture, like forms of art, literature. Believe it or not, religions are the best way to demonstrate how civilizations become more sophisticated. Our earliest civilizations all had very localized polytheistic religions that that basically explained nature. As civilizations come closer together, monotheism sort of arises to the top, and moral and ethical systems that have universal qualities to them and universal sets of beliefs that do not disqualify anyone from belief. Christianity, for instance, is the product of the multi-ethnic, multicultural, cosmopolitan Roman culture, just as uh, Islam is the great product of all the religions that lay along the Silk Road. Muhammad was a merchant. He sat down, he talked to Christians. He talked to, he talked to Buddhists, Hindus, people that practice Zoroastrianism, Manichaeism, and in many ways, Islam blends sort of all those together and in startling different kinds of ways that 
display Islam as this great product uh, of, of the Silk Road. But Islam also incorporated all the knowledge of the Silk Road as well into their own body of knowledge. In fact, it is during their Middle Ages that Europeans rediscover their own classical legacy through what Islam had, in fact, preserved for them. In fact, it is when European civilization during the later Middle Ages and during the Renaissance re-engages with the world of the Silk Road, they not only gain luxury goods for the elites of Europe, what they also gain is knowledge, not only knowledge of, 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 of science, of medicine, of philosophy, but also of technology. So the great irony, perhaps, of, of the history of world civilizations, it is that, that Europe is that civilization that arises and, and sets out for many centuries to dominate the rest of the world. Yet they did so with knowledge that they gained from the Silk Roads. So you mentioned the the trading networks that exist. And I think for many of us, when we think about the Silk Roads, we are thinking about them as economic conduits and the oh, yeah. transportation yeah. of tangible goods. But I'm intrigued by your mention of human capital. So do you want to take a step back and kind of explain to us exactly what you mean when you are using that term? I do. And so... In that introduction that I wrote for my students in my book, uh, The History of Globalization, I, I say that, you know, human capital is how we measure human productivity. And human beings are quite capable of doing amazing things all by themselves, like, say, the way that, um, you know, Daniel Defoe imagined Robinson Crusoe, you know, mastering an island. But what if you get a lot of Robinson Crusoe's together sharing that human capital that usually results in an exponential increase in sophistication? Okay. You know, when you think of like all those scientists who came together to create the atomic bomb or actually a better one is the global network of scientists who created the COVID vaccines. I mean, that is perhaps the most recent, you know, best argument for why we should remain, you know, connected to the rest of the world. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I just want to say civilizations, by their very nature, have great concentrations of human capital working together. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the other things that uh, came to mind as you were talking about the goods that are traveling along and the fact that, you know, we have evidence of silk in Africa and ivory in China. I was wondering, what are people in Africa and Asia getting from Europe? They're not really getting anything from Europe. Now, the Chinese liked Roman glass. Okay. But once the Roman Empire falls, I think the Romans stop making glass. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, I think this this speaks a great deal to that irony that you just pointed out. You know, what Europeans had to do is show up with cold, hard cash is what they had to do. I mean, they 
really were in a position to you're absolutely right about that. So Europe is is the freeloader, you know, of, the, <laughs> of, of all the cultures, you know, that that benefited from from the Silk Roads. <laughs> I was thinking that you know it's really not um, in terms of you know kind of what Europeans can trade. I don't know. I may be incorrect, but I was thinking you almost kind of have to wait until they make connections with the Americas and then they have foodstuffs that are desirable in other places. But until then, I'm not sure if they're trading a bunch of radishes to. <laughs> yeah. Europe, I, I guess, is properly described as a more of a, an extractive, you know, kind, yeah. of, kind of civilization. Um, but um, yes, I, I never really thought about it that way. <laughs> Fascinating, isn't it? So um, we spoke about economics. We spoke about religion. What about political ideas? Political ideas. Um, well, it's hard to... Politics means something now mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily in, in pre-modern societies. Mm-hmm. And that ideas that, that we might consider to be political today... Uh, would have no place in many of these societies. Uh, we, for instance, sort of will have the right to disagree with our our elected officials, but most people in most of these civilizations certainly would not have had those options. And and government and religion are usually very, very tied, very, very close together, very, very mutually reinforcing. Mm-hmm. And so that often to, to, to give vent to any form of political opposition would be, um, you know, uh, uh, quite a heinous offense. Well, if, if, if that's what you're sort of getting at. I think I'm, I may have phrased the question poorly, so I apologize for that. But I was thinking about... Um, the fact that at this time, our modern understanding of a nation state doesn't exist. No, no. And so I was thinking about how you have all of these different people moving along these thoroughfares that yes. represent diverse cultures. And I was just, I guess, trying to imagine how the political structure in their region, home, village, country, I'm not sure how to phrase it, would have impacted their understanding of their identity. I mean, are Chinese people moving along these routes, thinking about, you know, what they're doing for the emperor? Or is is it something else? I think that it probably is very different in each locality along the Silk Roads. Undoubtedly, Chinese People, Chinese merchants traveling along the Silk Road probably would have had sort of those kinds of identities. But many of the people that actually lay along the Silk Roads, and especially in dark and in, in, in very uh, high mountain passes or sort of high deserts, these are actually areas where, where you have more nomadic peoples living, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where their, their, their identities are simply uh, tribal. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they come to realize that they are, it is a benefit to them to provide services for those people 
who are traveling along the Silk Road. Mm -hmm. Much like, you know, before the interstate highway system was built in this country, most areas of the Southwest desert, you know, there was nothing there. But now if you drive along I-10, you know, there's, there's a, you know, there's obviously gas stations, but there's going to be McDonald's, maybe an Indian casino and outlet stores. And you mm-hmm. see those all along in smack dab in the middle of the desert. Why? Because just as the Silk Road became more complex, so our own, our own society became m- more integrated when suddenly out in the middle of the desert, we have signs of civilized life to take care of people who are traveling. We can actually see the same thing happen in the center of Asia as as many different what were called steppe peoples who normally had lived off the land that usually pastoralists. They realized that that providing in many ways services for people, for merchants traveling the Silk Road was a very lucrative kind of business. I mean, when Genghis Khan conquers his mighty empire, one of the things that finally dawns on him is that, wow, I'm in control of the Silk Road. Wow, this is something that is valuable, that it is profitable. And he makes, you know, maintaining the Silk Road uh, a priority. He makes it possible, for instance, in a sense, for the Polos, Marco Polo and his father and uncle, to make their journey overland to China because the Mongols saw how advantageous, how profitable maintaining the Silk Road was. Okay, so you do have in that sense a polity that is investing in the trade. It's not always individuals. So even in the absence of a nation state, you still have polities that see an advantage in investing in the in the May. Okay. All right. Very good. This kind of leads on to another question I had about safety when traveling along these paths. Well, this was a a treacherous world and um, insurance doesn't get developed until the Renaissance. And it was developed actually in Italy to sort of, you know, cover, actually to cover, you know, the cost of ships coming from the from the East Mediterranean laden with goods from Silk Roads to sort of, you know, buffer against, you know, not only loss through inclement weather, but also pirates. And again, the Silk Road is the Wild West. I mean, you're a lot safer when you're traveling through Persia than you are, say, through, you know, what today would be, you know, Kazakhstan or 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 Turkmenistan, you know, very desolate places where you you know you're rolling the dice. I imagine that uh, that well provisioned caravans. Part of that was you know a protective detail <laughs> of some kind. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about language? You have all of these people coming from all these different cultures and backgrounds. I was thinking about. Um, my own research interests in the what is now the southeastern United States and how you have a diverse group of indigenous people that are speaking all different sorts of languages, all different sorts of dialects of different languages. And then the southeast is unique in terms of 
the rest of the North American continent because you have kind of a convergence of French, Spanish, and British interests. So you have all of this kind of these different languages coming together, but everybody's interested in trade. And so there's a particular trade language that's created called Mobilian, which is just trade jargon. So all of these people that are traveling along trade paths and inter- interacting in economic exchanges with each other have a way to communicate. So I was wondering if, is is there a similar thing happening along the Silk Road or is it, how do, how are people communicating to get with each other? That's a really good question. Now, one analogy that I can think of right now is in the world that Alexander the Great created. And in many ways, he's 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 one of the architects of Silk Road in that he's united Greece and Egypt and the Near East and Persia and parts of Afghanistan and India. So that's pretty much the Western lake of the Silk Road. And one of Alexander's aims was to sort of, he wanted to spread the achievements of Greek civilization to the rest of the known world. And as he does so, suddenly, for instance, you know, Judaism, Zoroastrianism, uh, Greek religion, Greek philosophy, suddenly this spread sort of all over the place. But many of the languages actually blended together in a, in a language that was called coin. And it combined Greek and Semitic languages and, and various other languages that became that kind of language that you described also. That's really interesting. But another example, and this is sort of how the Silk Road eventually you know, develop sea routes as well uh, that go along India and Persia, but also down the coast of East Africa. Mm. And it is in East Africa that we saw the development of what was known as the Swahili culture, which was a blend of <clears throat> indigenous African languages and cultures, but also Arabian and Indian and and other peoples that had come to do business there, you know, that were linked into the Silk Road. And and that is still a that is still a distinct culture that exists today uh in East Africa. And I'm sure there's lots of smaller examples of that along the Silk Road. Yeah, I'm sure. So not everything is positive, though, right? It is because of these extensive networks and the movement of people and goods and animals along them that we also get the outbreak of disease and things like that. Is that correct? Absolutely. In fact, it is the the bubonic plague, the Black Death of, of the Middle Ages that erupts smack dab in the middle of the Silk Road. And it goes east and west. It ravages China and India and Persia before it makes its way uh, to Europe. And so, yes, absolutely. Uh, this was a way for a, a contagion that, you know, if there hadn't been a Silk Road, might have stayed contained in the center of Asia that makes its way 
you know, all the way, you know, to Europe. And it, it, it actually continues to ravage Europe all the way until the early 18th century. I think the last outbreak of plague was in Marseille in the south of France in 1722. And then, and then Europe just developed that, that herd immunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those things take time. Right. Yeah. Right. What about literature and the arts? How is that? How are those things moving along the Silk Road? Well, India creates, uh, it, they should be called Indian numerals because the Indians create them. But as they make their way along the Silk Roads and the Arabs get a hold of them, and then we start calling them Arab numerals. Mm. But when they reach Europe during the high Middle Ages, you know, that transforms how you conceptualize numbers and and making calculations. Mm-hmm. Um, it was by re-engaging with the world of the Silk Road that that Europeans discovered, you know, uh, many amazing and informative texts, like the book by Avicenna, who was a great uh, Arab scholar and philosopher and scientist who made this amazing, amazing compilation of all the knowledge of Hellenistic uh, Greek achievement. And this was of great benefit to Europeans. In fact, it was pretty much the model, you know, for medicine in Europe until, you know, ideas about modern medicine come about during the, the Enlightenment period. So, but many, it, the, the knowledge of, of India and Persia and Mesopotamia and Egypt and Greece all came together in the library of Alexandria. And that was perhaps, you know, this red letter date in the history of globalization where the first time all the knowledge that existed in the known world, because the Silk Road wasn't complete just yet, but that was a still big, a big chunk of it that gets to be all in one place in the library of Alexandria. But later on, uh, during the during the golden age of Islam, Baghdad becomes a great intellectual center mm-hmm. of all manner of knowledge because Islam had preserved the entire corpus of classical knowledge. Mm-hmm. Even Timbuktu out in the middle of, of the middle of Africa also becomes a great center of an intellectual center of Islamic knowledge also. So again, the Silk Road even manages to worm its way into the Sahara Desert also. Although a thousand years ago, those areas of, of, of West Africa were much more temperate than they are today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you're discussing the Silk Road with your students, because this was this, this was the as a reminder, the students responded that this was something that they wanted to know more about. Are they shocked by these global connections? The fact that these global connections existed such a long time ago? Are they thinking that globalization is a rather modern phenomenon, or is this something um, that they are aware of? Well, 
I will have a better answer for you after I grade their final exams. <laughs> because for me, and you know, this is my final semester here, but it, it is, this class tells a story that hopefully helps them understand the way the world is today. Mm. And helps them understand the mechanisms in which we make the world a better place. Mm. I want I want to do whatever I can to help make the world a better place. And I would like my students to consider the idea that global cooperation, you know, despite many drawbacks and despite many negative things, is overwhelmingly something that is positive for this planet. That if we have a cosmopolitan attitude mm. towards people who are different than we are, we have the opportunity to to engage, to to benefit from their own human capital if we're willing to partake of it. And these are the ways in which we solve our problems. They are. You know, to circle back to the COVID vaccines, I mean, I think that when this history is written, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be that while that was a global effort that came together with lightning speed to, to provide these vaccines, when you consider how long it took to create the vaccines for many diseases in the past, how it took sometimes many years, sometimes decades, the fact that these came together 18 months um, and they're still doing that job and how many lives were saved because this nation became mobilized in such a way. Actually, the whole world became mobilized in such a way. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. And I think that is a almost a ringing endorsement, you know, for supporting the uh, idea of globalization as a way to understand the processes by which the peoples of the world come closer together. I think that's a really wonderful note, maybe, to even end on, unless you have something else that you think that we really need to know about the Silk Road. I think that I, I'm good, but this was so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Beam. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Please join us next time when we will discuss the Aztecs. Speak with you soon.